Good morning and greetings again in Christ's name. Certainly have appreciated what was shared so far in the Sunday School. Very, uh, very challenging things and somewhat builds up to what we want to look at here this morning. Turn with me to John 10. We had uh, spent several times looking through the chapter 9 in John and uh, focusing on the lessons we could learn from Jesus' healing of this blind person. Now we come to chapter 10, and um, we sometimes think as chapter divisions as um, somewhat a break in thought, and we're moving on to a different event or, or something along those lines. But as Arnie pointed out several years ago, chapter divisions are not necessarily inspired. They're added to, and so really... Chapter 10 is an extension of chapter 9, and if we would read the entire chapter, which we will not, you would find that Jesus refers back to, the, um, to some of the issues in chapter 9 that were covered, and, uh, and he helps them to see that this, um, this um, teaching he's giving them on the, the uh, good shepherd and so on have a lot to do with the events that took place in chapter 9. I'm going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 10, and then we'll, we'll look at it a little bit more. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is in hireling and not the shepherd which own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and, an, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my, my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down by my, of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have, have I received of my Father. Okay, so um, what Jesus is offering here in these verses is an alternative to the confusion and distress that we find in chapter 9. Without recapping that very much, uh, just kind of building on what we talked about the last time, you'll remember that there was um, um, much unbelief 
and much wrong belief on the part of the Pharisees as to exactly um, how do I rid myself of this burden of sin that is upon me. And Jesus clearly tells them in verse 41 of chapter 9 that the way they were looking was the wrong way. Uh, their sin remained. The, uh, the idea of a sheep and shepherd and this whole idea of a flock is, is a theme that runs heavily through the entire Bible. Uh, you know that. Um, that one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible, Psalm 23, talks about the Lord is my shepherd. Very, very familiar. God is presented as a shepherd. But all through history, God has entrusted his flock to what is termed as under-shepherds many times. And uh, I'm going to read a verse or two here out of Numbers 27 quickly. And this, this, this is Moses speaking here. And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. Moses here understood that there was a need for some kind of shepherding for this flock of Israelites. And so the Lord told Moses, he said, well, take Joshua. And he's a man that has my spirit. Lay your hand on him, and he will become my under-shepherd. The reality is, however, that these shepherds throughout the Old Testament did a lousy job. Um, there's, there's much in the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the minor prophets as well. Pharisees are a prime example of the poor job that the under-shepherds ended up doing. Think of the kings and the priests of the Old Testament. So many of those folks were, were just not godly people, very ungodly as a matter of fact, and um, often abused the, uh, the shepherd or the, the sheep and manipulated them. There's a verse in Jeremiah 10:21 that says, "For the pastors, or you could interject shepherds, the, the word could be used there interchangeably, are become brutish. In other words, they have become destructive. And have not sought the Lord, therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks will be scattered. It seems like that verse could be very well um, be talking about the Pharisees and the leaders of Jesus' day. Brutish, brutish people. What a, what a terrible adjective to use for someone that's supposed to be a shepherd. In, uh, let's, let's just turn to Jeremiah 23. This is a, this is a very descriptive term or a few verses here, again describing the, the awfulness of the shepherds in, uh, in Jeremiah's day. I'm going to read the first six verses. Woe be unto the pastors, again you could put shepherds in there, that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors, or shepherds that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again into their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. And then there's prophetic scripture about Jesus coming to be the real shepherd uh, for this flock. Ezekiel 34 is probably one of the most descriptive passages of the brutishness of the shepherds 
of uh, that day. And I'm going to read just a few verses here real quick, verses 18 and 19. And this is Ezekiel speaking, the Lord's words. Seemeth it a small thing unto you that you have eaten up the good pasture, but must, but ye must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures? And you have drunk of the deep waters, but ye must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat which ye have treaden, trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. I mean, what horrible shepherds. I mean, not only were they eating the good pasture and leaving the residue for the sheep, but they had to smear the mud over it first too. I mean, the, the nutrition that they were able to give this flock was just horrible. And then they had to swish and wash their feet in, in the water that the, the, the sheep were supposed to drink. But when you think of it, that is such a, such a parallel to what the uh, Pharisees were doing. They were eating the good pasture and giving foul pasture to the people around them that they were supposed to be teaching. And the teaching was so skewed and misleading that, I mean, there was malnourishment everywhere you looked in, in, in Jesus' time. And I think this is why Jesus' teaching was so highly, uh, so widely accepted and uh, so highly appreciated was because this man didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He had some real nourishment for people. Um, I certainly know by experience that um, hayfields, I one time made a, a big mistake of, of um, hauling manure on a hayfield that I was going to make some hay off of four weeks hence. And I can tell you one thing, my, my cattle did not perform on that hay. They wouldn't eat it, actually. Um, so foul up feed is not, is not fit for anything other than the dunghill. Well, something had to change. Something had to change. A new shepherd had to come and uh, feed God's flock or else there was going to be uh, serious, serious problems. And that's exactly what happened. And that is why Jesus came to be the shepherd uh, here, and that's what he portrays himself of. So before we go further here, I would like to just define some of the, term, the terminology that Jesus uses here in this passage. Um, not many of us, if any, have, um, have much, um, much to do with sheep or ever were shepherds. Uh, some of us had, have given it a whirl at times, but um, probably we were a bit brutish and unable. Um, that's probably where I would cast my hat in that camp. So um, what, about, what was a sheepfold in Jesus' time? So a sheepfold was often a temporary arrangement out in the wilderness or the pasture or whatever that a shepherd would throw together quickly at night to, to just protect his sheep. It could be thrown together with stones or wood or whatever, but it, maybe even some of the lay of the land would be used as a wall or something. But it was a very temporary arrangement. And um, often he would lay at the door. He would literally sleep in the doorway so that anything going in would have to walk over him and anything coming out, same thing. So any sheep that wanted to escape or anything that wanted to come in had to cross the shepherd, which is why Jesus calls himself the door as well, just as an aside. Um, in, the more in the more permanent uh, sheepfolds in the villages, um, there were, they were more well-constructed, and there a shepherd would take his flock when he returned to the village and many times there would be more than one flock in these sheepfolds. Um, again, I covered the door part of it, uh, talking about how the, how the shepherd would lay in the doorway and, um, and would become actually the door. 
And so the, the parallel to Jesus, we'll, we'll look at that just a little bit uh, later on. So who is the porter? So a porter, we could, we could, inter, we could use the, the term watchman as well. The porter was the night watchman. And in these more permanent um, um, sheepfolds, he would be the guy that would stand there and he'd watch. He was the guy that, that watched over these flocks uh, while the shepherds were home. And so he was in charge of these sheep uh, while, while the, the shepherd was not there. And whenever the shepherds would come in the morning to reclaim their sheep, he obviously would recognize these people. And, and so you, you couldn't just walk up and say, well, I, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm here to claim my sheep if you weren't the shepherd because the porter would know you. And uh, you weren't going to get away with just going in and, and pulling out somebody else's sheep. Thieves and robbers also were um, unfortunately somewhat common in Jesus' time. And these people had a... Um, had a, uh, a, um, their method, I guess you'd say, of, of robbing or stealing sheep was to wait for a time when the shepherd maybe wasn't looking or was sidetracked, jump into the sheepfold and start slitting necks and chucking the sheep outside. You know, somebody was standing outside the fold, so the guy inside would slit the neck, chuck the sheep outside, and the whole idea of the thief coming for to steal and to kill was, was a very, I mean, people connected with this. That's what thieves did. That's how they got their sheep. And um, their, their objective was not about caring for sheep. It was all about making a buck. And um, a dead sheep was turned into uh, to their mutton or whatever and, and killed or maybe used to feed their family or whatever. But plundering the sheep was their job. That was what they were about, killing and plundering. Um, Jesus uses the terminology of the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. Uh, that was a hallmark of a good shepherd. Um, wild animals at that time roamed uh, very freely in the uh, pastures of, of Judea. And a shepherd had to be quite vigilant to make sure that wild animals did not get his, his sheep. And uh, it was necessary at times to literally uh, go for that wild animal and capture that lamb away from that wild animal, and trust me, that was not for the faint of heart. That's why David's argument, when he was before King Saul, and he said, Saul, I can, I can take on Goliath because I have killed a lion and a bear, that Saul said, you know what? If this guy took on a lion and a bear, there is a good chance he can take on Goliath too. That actually was a compelling argument uh, that's, that David used there of his bravery and valor. Um, Jesus, in stressing his love for his sheep, um, stresses that, look, I'll give my life for my sheep. I'm not a feeble-hearted shepherd. I'm not a wimp. So who's a hireling? Well, many times due to the size of the flock of the sheep, if you had too many sheep, you would either hire a guy to help you to herd the sheep, or you would split the flock, and the hireling would take one flock, and, and the real shepherd would take the other flock. And this could work out. It's not like the hireling was a bad guy necessarily, but there was really his primary reason for taking care of the flock was that there was a paycheck on Friday. And so his drive to take care of that flock wasn't that he cared a lot about the sheep, but he did care about the paycheck. So he was behooved to do a good job to a certain point, but he didn't have the motivation that the real shepherd did. 
And I mean, that's not news to any of us here that have ever worked with hired help. I mean, you know, you have a, if you have a stake in the game, it means more to you. So the, the hireling tended to be a little bit more reserved about fetching lambs and sheep out of lion's mouths. And he was a whole lot more concerned about his own safety. And so at times, because of, of the hireling's take on life, the wolf would come and have his way. And the hireling would flee. This... Um, this is very, this resonated with people. They understood this. They got it. They understood what Jesus was talking about. Also, the, the, the emphasis Jesus puts in verse 16 about being one fold and one shepherd is very significant. Uh, Jesus' flock doesn't get too big. He doesn't have to go after hirelings. He can take care of them. It's important that we have one fold, one shepherd. Verse 14, um, there's a reference to knowing the sheep. And the Oriental shepherd had an amazing intimacy with his sheep. Um, most of the shepherds knew to the exact number how many sheep he had, and he would count those sheep every evening. And there's even accounts uh, given in some of the reading I did of, of shepherds that know their sheep so well that they could attach baby lambs with their mothers after dark. Now, if you know anything about sheep after dark and lambs and everything running in a circle, that's a feat. That is, that's something noteworthy. But um, somebody gave a, an eyewitness account of watching an Arab shepherd take 51 lambs and 51 ewes after dark and getting those back together. Now, that's knowing your sheep. The shepherd had an all-consuming job to find pasture for his sheep. And it was a poor shepherd indeed that couldn't do this job. And sometimes in inclement weather or in times of drought, the shepherd would actually have to find alternative feed for his sheep. And that got to be quite an intense job. When you started to have to drag the feed to the flock, that was a lot of work. And this is why good pasture land was highly coveted in Bible times. And um, it... it, it it tells us why Joseph's brothers were concerned about finding good pasture in Egypt. And, um, and just different illustrations we have. Why the, the tribes, when they came into, um, the children of Israel came in to possess the land of Canaan. Uh, some of the tribes said, well, can we stay on the east side of Jordan? We just like the pasture land over here. Well, that was, that was legit. And uh, we know that they, they had their way there. Okay, so enough on the, the terminology. Um, Let's, uh, let's dig a little deeper here now, and what is the application that we can make for ourselves today? Well, the first obvious thing I would like to just um, tell you is that uh, whether you know it or not, you and I are sheep. We're just an awful lot like sheep. And that's not exactly, maybe that isn't the most endearing thing to you, but uh, the Bible is clear. In Isaiah 53, one of the most familiar verses of the Bible, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, or Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And Peter resonates with that when he quotes that in 1 Peter 2. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So because you're a sheep, what does that mean? Well, that means, number one, you need a shepherd. You really do. And the quicker you figure that out, the better off you will be. Embrace the fact that you need a shepherd. Why do you need a shepherd? A sheep has no homing abilities. If you take a sheep and you take him 10 miles from home, you leave him off, he will not find his way home 
um, most of the time. It's going to be uh, a miracle if he does. You take a cat or a dog, that might happen a little quicker, but not with a sheep. So by yourself, you tend to get lost. Um, you really need a shepherd. Sheep love flocks. Um, cattle do too, for that matter. And if you take a sheep or a cow and you take the, the herd or the flock that direction and you try to cut off one and put her in a pen, let me tell you, that, that sheep or that cow will get very nervous. It does not like to be separated from the flock at all. You want to be with other sheep or cows. Um, if you like to be by yourself, it's a good indication you're a little sick. It really is. If a cow wants to be by herself, it's one of two reasons. Either she's going to have a calf real soon or she's sick. One of, the, one of those two. Otherwise, they want to be with, with other cows. You need a shepherd because by yourself, your judgment is probably just a little impaired. Um, we had a, a lamb at one point in time, about 10 years ago or so, maybe a little more. We had this orphan lamb that we, that we raised. Some of you probably even remember the thing running around there. But he didn't have a flock to be with. But he wanted to be with other animals, so he took to the dog. He ran with the dog. And so the dog and the lamb would run around there. But because of his impaired judgment... One day he was no more because the dog led him to a pack of coyotes, as near as I can tell, and he didn't know how to fend off the coyotes. So he became supper. Didn't have good judgment. He should have been with a flock and he should have had a lot better shepherd. I, I will say I failed there. All right, you are a sheep. What else? If you are a sheep, you need a sheep fold. As I want to come back and just uh, uh, make the case again, you are in big trouble. We are in big trouble if we think that we can fend for ourselves. We need protection. And it certainly is, um, I think we do well to believe that the, the parallel here in this account is the fold is certainly Jesus is pointing to the church that he had come to build. And for us to think that we can make it by ourselves without the help of that sheepfold called the church um, is foolish. Um, I'm going to read just a few New Testament references here that refer to the church and what it is. First Timothy, there's a verse that goes like this. But if I tarry long, this is Paul, that thou mayest know how thou oughtst behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. You got that? The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is where the truth of Jesus will be found. And it is an anchor and a stabilizing force in your and my life. A Christian without a church is not going to do just real well. Ephesians has this verse, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. There's an assumption here again that a Christian will be part of a church and that one day Jesus will come back to fetch that church. Uh, there's always the assumption that Jesus is going to come for a church and the Christians will find themselves a part of that church. Colossians has this verse, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the first word from the dead, that in all things he might have the, the preeminence. If you want to be part of the body, you must be part of the church because it says that Jesus is, a, is the head of the church. And so if you want to be a part of Jesus, you've got to be part of the body. 
Um, it's foolishness. It's really foolishness to think otherwise. I'll never forget when I was about 12, 13 years old or so, there was a uh, seed slash fertilizer slash chemical business about two miles up the road from us. And the proprietor of that business, it was kind of a lazy little business there. And uh, so my dad would send me up there sometimes in the tractor to get a fertilizer buggy or whatever. And, and I remember one day that the person that ran the place was a was somewhat of a, I don't, I don't know what church he belonged to, but he was a church-going kind of a person anyway, Christian. And uh, I remember one day distinctly him telling me, and I don't know how we got on this conversation even, even but he told me that you, you can be a Christian without being part of a church. Now, I mean, I was a little 12-year-old there, and I was not prepared to get real theological with him, but he was adamant about that, but that just didn't resonate with me. I just like, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like the teaching I get, you know? Um, but anyway, that, is, that has always stuck with me. Is that really true? Well, you could make the argument that the thief on the cross was not part of a church necessarily. There, there's, a, there's a nugget of truth to that. There's a little bit of a part of the truth with that. But I want to say this, that a Christian will desire to be a part of a church. I really believe a healthy Christian will be. Um, I, I ran across this, this little uh, saying, or I don't know, it, but... It's, it's, an, it's an analogy that somebody came up with that I think makes a, a, the case perfectly. If, a, if you're a Christian and you say you don't need a church, it's like saying that I'm a fireman, but I can fight a fire without water. Or I'm a bee, but I don't need a hive. I'm a banker, but I have no money. I'm a sailor, but I have no ship. I'm a soldier, but I refuse to join the army. I'm a doctor, but I have no patience. I'm an attorney, but I live on an abandoned island. See, it just doesn't go together. It's oxymorons. Um, makes no sense whatsoever. Well, this, uh, this was floating around in my, in my mind um, this week, this idea of being a part of a fold or a church. And I got a, uh, an email from, um, from the Barna Research that, um, that I'm just going to read a part of it to you because it's, it's, it was the state of the church in America today, and maybe some of you have seen this. I'm going to read just a bit of it. As of 2014, the estimated number of people in the U.S. who Barna Group would define as churchless stands at 156 million U.S. residents. To put this in context, if all these unchurched people were a separate nation, it would be the eighth most, most populous country in the world. In the past decade, the number of unchurched people in America has increased by 30%. The majority of the unchurched individuals, 76%, have ironically had first-hand experience with one or more Christian churches and based on their experience have decided they could use their time in better ways. And now this is, the, um, this is um, a comment made by the, the pollster. Unchurched adults are very much like churched adults, except they don't go to church, says David Kinneman, who served as the general editor along with George Barna. While a few of the demographic differences between the churched and unchurched are statistically significant, there is no such thing as a can't-miss strategy for appealing to them. In fact, the data uncovered so many similarities between churched and unchurched people that we have to conclude that a number of the stereotypes about both groups are not valid. The fact remains, though, that more Americans than ever today are not attending church. Most of them did, did at some point, and for one reason or another, decided not to continue. 
This fact should motivate church leaders and attenders to examine how to make appropriate changes, not for the sake of enhancing numbers, but to address the lack of life transformation that would attract more people to remain an active part. And I have to say, I thought that last statement was pretty profound. Uh, why are people uh, not finding themselves in need of a church? Well, perhaps it's because there is no difference. Uh, I'm afraid that that is uh, many times the case in, in the churches today. Well, we could, we could wax long about um, the state of the church in America, and I don't know that that would help a lot. But remember this. The church was God's idea. It was not a man-made invention. This was God's idea. And so let's, let's, let's embrace being a part of a church. You know, um, we, uh, we are a part of a church here this morning, all of us. And uh, we tell how much it means to us by how we relate to it. And so let's, um, let's make sure we relate to it in a way that validates the need for the church in, in your and my life. Uh, there's a real, there's a real uh, potential for us to become virtual churchless people. Um, yeah, we belong to a church, but it doesn't mean a lot to us. I think, uh, I think there's a few things that, that make this problem in the world we live in, um, the, the whole idea of thinking we can be a sheep without a fold. Um, I, think, I think the American independence has probably rubbed off on us a bit. Um, and in our church in particular, we're, we're quite geographically dispersed. And so that makes you know, a, a church, a, it gives its own challenges and, and, um, and, um, and things we need to work with. But let's make sure we enjoy church. Let's make sure that we, that we, uh, we, we want to be a part of it and, and purpose in our hearts to make it our priority. Um, so we'll, we'll leave that uh, with that, but I just want to encourage you, love your sheepfold. We, we need it. We really do. Okay, um, another thing. There's only one way into the sheepfold, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, accept his blood and embrace his teachings. Uh, Jesus says here in verse 8 that all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Now that's an interesting statement because you'd say, is Jesus saying here that every, every person or every under-shepherd that ever was before me had no good? I mean, what, what about Moses? You know, what about Joshua? Certainly these people were, were good, um, good under-shepherds. I think what Jesus is actually saying here is that anybody that attempted to get into the sheepfold before they got to the door is a thief and a robber. That, that makes more sense to me, I guess. So if, if you read it that way, anybody that scaled into the sheepfold before they got to the door and accepted that entrance is a thief and a robber. You know, to enter the sheepfold, uh, one must rid himself of any ideas that there must be a better way, or that Jesus, what he taught, really isn't practical for today's world. Um, this, is one, this is where the Reformers and the Anabaptists separated ways in a big-time in a, in a big manner back in the day. Um, the Reformers, the difference between the Anabaptists and the Reformers were, the Reformers were willing to take the churches that stood and try to twist it and tweak it and make it fit their mold. So in many ways... They did, not, they did not restore it to its pristine original position. They were willing to tweak 
Christ's words and, and Jesus' commands and so on to fit their agenda. It'd be somewhat like if I would take a tractor and I would say, I'm going to restore that tractor. I would take that thing down to the, to the metal. I, I would do everything I could to make sure that when I was done, that thing looked like a brand new, whatever, 4020, right out of the showroom, 1965. You can't tell the difference. If I'm a reformer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, a 4020 and I'm going to say, I want it to function for me, but I'm not, too care, I'm not, I'm not going to carry it about, away about restoring it. I just want it to be functional. And so that means that you'll do like I did yesterday, and you'll get just sick and tired of the battery boxes where they are. And so you'll mount one, a battery box on the side, and you'll put a real battery in it, and you'll just get rid of those, those things that just are a pain in the neck. I reformed my 4020, but I certainly didn't restore it. Okay, I made it functional. I made it fit my needs, but it's not restored. Okay? Churches today, I'm afraid many of them, have... Um, followed that reform mentality, and that's why you have the unbiblical practices that are just ever-present um, in, in almost all churches. Let's make the Bible fit our agenda. And, and folks, don't, don't hear me wrong here. That's not just a problem that's out there. We have to make sure that we're not reformers either. Um, let's make sure that the Bible is where we go. That's, we want restoration. We do not want reformation. Don't make the Bible fit your agenda. Make your agenda fit the Bible. This move toward uh, tolerance, all-out tolerance and inclusion in today's wor world is, is very outrageous. And at first it sounds so right. The word tolerance has a kind of a nice ring to it. You know, tolerate things, you know. It seems like that could be the right thing. I find it interesting that a few years ago, uh, the verse John 3.16 was the most widely known verse in America. If you walked up to somebody and said, can you quote me a verse? It would be John 3.16. Today, as I understand it, the most widely known verse in America is, judge not that ye be not judged. Tolerance. You get it? Very, very misapplied, but that's the verse that we like to bandy about. All right, I hope that's not, uh, hope that's not um, uh, something we're grappling with. I don't think it is. But I, my fear is constant exposure to this tolerance thing could wear us out, I'm afraid. Let's just keep our guards up and know what we're, what we're against. All right, another thing here that we see, some application. The sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and will follow. In verse 4, in verse 16, verse 27... It, it keeps talking about the sheep hear my voice and they follow. <clears throat> Folks, you know this. We talk about it, but we live in a busy world. We live in a world that is raging with busyness. We're caught up into that and we run what we call a rat race um, many times. And that works against hearing the shepherd's voice. It really does. And just remember this as a little aside. To my knowledge, nobody has ever run won the rat race, so don't even try. And if you do, remember this, you're still a rat. Okay, so the rat race, just really, just leave that alone. If we could keep that in mind, it would help. And also there's the ma'am of pursuit of entertainment and, and all these things, and that's all counterproductive to hearing Jesus' voice. There's another thing here I think that's, that's interesting. 
When, when the sheep heard the shepherd's voice, they didn't so much hear the words that he said, but they knew his tone. He would use the same words. But if a foreign person would have come in and used the words that the shepherd used, they wouldn't follow because they didn't recognize his tone. And, and you know that to be true. Try it on your dog sometime. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't recognize what you say necessarily. Maybe some do. But most mutts understand the tone of your voice. You can go up to your dog and say, oh, you miserable wretch. And he'll say, oh, he'll wag his tail, you know. But if you say, oh, you're such a beautiful dog, well, you know, he'll cower. Because he, that tone of voice is what, he, is what he hears and he responds to. Um, if there's a lesson for us here, um, watch the tone of voice. Watch for the tone of voice of the false shepherd. Um, sometimes the words seem extremely enticing, but listen for the tone. Colossians 2.4 warns about being deceived with enticing words, okay, with, a nice, with, a, with nice words, but the tone isn't quite right. You know, sometimes learning to know the shepherd and hearing his voice and learning to know him in a better way is brought about by difficult circumstances in our lives. And we don't really like to think about that, but you know, that's true. <coughs> You know, in, 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 a, in the real world, if I have a cow or a sheep that's sick, that sheep is going to get a whole lot more attention from me than the one that's well. Because he can kind of, you know, kind of go on his own. But if that, if that cow is sick, um, it's going to get more attention. It's going to get water and feed brought to it. It's going to get some medical attention and these kinds of things. Um, so he's, it's going to, quote, unquote, spend more time with the shepherd. The same thing applies to us. If we're going through difficult times, really difficult times in our lives, it behooves us to spend more time with our shepherd. And in that way, we bond more with our shepherd. You know, in our church, I had to think of this. Um, we, certainly, we certainly have had um, times in our church in, this, in the last while that we, we had opportunity to bond with our shepherd. We've had, uh, we've had death. We've had um, just the, the um, responsibilities of raising a family and some of the challenges that that brings. We've had um, possible career changes for some of us that we've looked at. Um, I know some of us are facing um, some assignments perhaps in, um, in our um, schooling or something like that. It just seems insurmountable. Remember, this is when we can, we can bond with our shepherd, and let's, let's never forget that. Okay, let's talk a little about the pasture now. So the pasture of the Good Shepherd, let me assure you, is adequate and available if we will follow. In verses 3 and 4, it uses the terminology, leadeth them out and putteth forth his own sheep. The, Ori the Oriental Shepherd would always lead his sheep out every morning, if he was in the village anyway, he would lead them out long, narrow lanes. I mean, these were the narrow lanes that if the sheep wanted to, he could flick his head this way or that way and maybe catch a bite on the way to the pasture. But if he did that, he was actually stealing somebody else's crop. So the, the shepherd was always um, very alert to that, and he wanted to train his sheep, don't eat the neighbor's property, don't eat his corn or whatever, whatever's beside the path, do not eat. Um, this also refers back to a, a, a phrase in Psalm 23 talking about that he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. As long as we stay on that path of righteousness, we'll get to the, to the uh, pasture that we want to eat. Um, 
the application for us is, are we satisfied with the pasture, or do we want to nibble a little along the way of the crops that are growing along the, uh, the path? Um, sometimes that can be harmful to our health. Um, I know a friend of mine had a, had a heifer that got out of uh, his good pasture a few years ago and um, got out where he shouldn't, and it was the night after we had frost, and the heifer decided he, he would take three bites. He only had three bites, but he took three bites of sorghum sedan grass the night after frost. Now, to you non-farmers, that means nothing, but that means death for an animal. You eat anything, any sorghum sedan that has been frosted within three days after that frost, and that's death. That heifer died within like 10 minutes. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful illustration of waiting for the good pasture. Leave the stuff by the lane alone. So how are you enjoying your pasture? If you're not enjoying it, the question would be, well, why not? Why aren't you enjoying it? Proverbs 13.25 may have a clue. It says, the righteous, righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul. If you're not enjoying the pasture, it could be an indication that there's a little lack of righteousness. Um, in this pasture here, the Bible, you can't get too much of it. it. It is good. It's not poisonous. There's nothing that will harm you. You will gain weight on it. It's a wonderful thing to munch on. You know, preachers can ride their hobby horses. Authors can wiggle in their opinions. But the word of God has no hobby horse or opinion. Eat it. It's there for you. It's healthful and it's satisfying. Job says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job was enjoying his pasture. We have a, we have a choice here. Um, the word of God is indeed a nutritious, abundant pasture. And... I would even say this. There might, be, there might be such a thing that we have to cultivate an appetite for the Word of God. I would say that's a possibility, but that's okay. Uh, I stand before you as an example of a person that has cultivated an appetite for oatmeal. Can you believe that? But I have. When I got married to my wife, she liked oatmeal and I did not. But she kept making it. She kept tweaking it. I kept eating it because I wanted to like it. And today, I love oatmeal. I stand before you as one that likes oatmeal. I cultivated that taste. I think that can be applied to the Word of God. The more you're into it, the more you study it, the more you'll like it. If you don't, it could be a big flag that all is not well, and very likely you're nibbling on the dainties by the side of the road. And it may be an indication that you have a spiritual fever. Are you okay to stay on the paths of righteousness and wait for the good green pasture? Well, how about the porter? We have the porter here. What can we apply from the porter? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I don't know who you, who you identify the porter as in this particular passage. Um, I often thought of the porter as God, and I think there is, that is symbolic. There is some symbolism there. Uh, in some of my readings, some, some authors thought perhaps the porter was more symbolic of the Holy Spirit working through the church as to ascertain what can and who can come in and out of the church. And that made some sense, too. The, the watchman, the, um, the, the idea of a watchman's position. Um, so I would just say this. If you find yourself in a watchman's position, and many of you do here today, uh, many of us are watchmen of our homes and so on, 
Um, make sure that you watch. Don't fall asleep. Um, ascertain who that person is that wants into the fold or that idea. And um, you know, it's one thing to miss a thief that's scaling the wall, but it's quite another to let somebody just walk in the door. Okay? Don't let people just walk in the door. All right, so let's look at the hireling just a little bit. So the hireling versus the legitimate shepherd. I think this represents people that are really engaged. And uh, they, they, they're trying to do a good job with the sheep. And they have a little bit of an interest in the sheep. But ultimately, their, um, their bottom line goal is just a little skewed. I would say perhaps if you wanted to make an application to today's world, um, you know, we have many music artists, we have many um, authors, book authors, there's radio ministries, and all these things have a little something to offer, perhaps. But if truth be told, there's way too many m music artists and authors and radio ministers that are in it for the money. That's what they want. That's what they're after. And they, they don't really have a true interest in the sheep. I don't want to be judgmental, but I think if you washed it all out, I think um, that's part of the motive. You know, we can even bring it a little closer home. Um, you know, we get, we, you know, our young people go to Bible school. You know, we get speakers into our churches and so on. And we, we develop an appreciation for these people, and that's fine. That, that's okay. These people are legitimate people. But truly, I think we should we should develop an appreciation for the people right here on the home front that have a interest, a legitimate interest in the flock right here at home. Um, you know, sometimes these, I think our appreciation for somebody from afar is something like having a substitute school teacher. I, I remember sub-school teachers in, uh, in my day, and it always seemed like I liked them just a little bit better than the teacher, you know, because you get away with just a little bit more. And they, they were just a little bit, bit kinder. But you know what? They were in, in and out of there in a week or two, and they didn't have to deal with it. And so it was easy for them to be nice and gentle and, and you know, these, this, this wonderful person. Because they really didn't have any dog in the fight. You know, they were in and out and gone. Um, maybe that's a poor illustration. But I just want to encourage us. Um, cultivate an appreciation for your brotherhood right here at home. Um, Esteem your brothers highly for their work's sake, as the Bible says. I think that'll, uh, that'll go a long way in uh, maintaining um, the sheepfold that, um, that Jesus is directing us toward here. Well, I'm going to bring this to a conclusion, and I'm not sure how to conclude it, conclude it right, but do you enjoy being a sheep? Do you enjoy your sheepfold? Do you enjoy your shepherd? Do you enjoy the pastures? Do you find yourself saying yes to those questions? I hope you do. Um, there's an interesting verse in Revelation 14, and I wanted to back up here, something I didn't mention before, but Jesus is referred to as the lamb many times. He's not only the shepherd in the door, but he's also a lamb. And um, this is just part of the verse there in, in Revelation 14, describing the 144,000 that John is being you know, he asked about and he's being told. And this is what John is told. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So follow your Lamb. 
That's how you're going to end up where you want to end up, keeping your sheepfold, enjoy your pasture. We got it good. I don't think sometimes we realize just how good we have it because we get so bogged down with the things we see along the path and the hireling that disappointed us and the thieves and the robbers. Don't focus on that. Focus on your good shepherd. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and we're so thankful that you are our shepherd. I thank you that you care for your sheep. Lord, help us to be sheep that are worthy of being in the fold. Help us to want to be there. Help us to embrace your, uh, your care and your keeping. Lord, I pray this morning for those in our number who need special care from you. Lord, I pray that you would give that to them, grant them grace and comfort and care during whatever time they're facing at this point. Lord, as we look to the future, we once again acknowledge that we need you. We don't know what's ahead. We don't know what the future holds, but we know that you as our good shepherd do, and so we ask that you would um, just take care of us and that you would put your loving arms around us as we uh, embrace the future and whatever it holds. Lord, I pray that you would just be with um, this flock here at uh, Prairie. Lord, I just thank you for each of us as we labor together and we learn to love each other and to love you. Um, Lord, just uh, help us to esteem each other highly and to um, be a witness of a sheepfold that is happy in your care to the world around us. We ask this in your name.